Good morning. Let's go and begin class with prayer. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study again. We ask that your Holy Spirit, Spirit of truth, Spirit of love, will, will join us today, fill our hearts, minds, the Spirit temple, cleansing, transforming, renewing, enlightening us, that we can come to know you more fully. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number four in the quarterly, um, the Holy Spirit and spirituality, and the title is The Personality of the Holy Spirit. And the memory text is John fourteen twenty six, and it says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Any thoughts about this text before we unpack it a little bit? Well, in the Acts of the Apostles, the book, the Acts of the Apostles, I read the following in, in regards to this. It says, To the repentant sinner, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, the Holy Spirit reveals the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He shall receive mine and shall know and shall show it unto you, Christ said, and he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The Spirit is given as a regenerating agency to make effectual the salvation wrought by the death of our Redeemer. Think through the meaning of what's being said here. The Spirit is constantly seeking to draw the attention of men to the great offering that was made on the cross of Calvary, to unfold to the world the love of God and to open to the convicted soul the precious things of Scripture. I'm going to pause here. According to this author, what is the purpose of the Spirit? What's the, what's the Spirit seeking to accomplish? To make Christ's sacrifice effectual in the believers, in the sinners. How? What would the Spirit need to do to make what Christ did effectual in us? Make us like Him. Make us like Him. And what would the Spirit need to do in order to do that? Give us power to live our lives. Give us power to live our lives? Power. We're going to talk about that in a second. Also, it's cooperation. Okay, so think, what what does the Spirit need to do? Is the Spirit already all-powerful, divine, member of the Godhead? So why doesn't the Spirit just, bam, use power to make it that way? Not by power, nor by might. Yes, not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, Zechariah 4, 6. How does the Spirit work? Spirit of truth and love. Okay, so what does the Spirit need to do to make what Christ accomplished effectual in us? Reveal the truth and love. Reveal the truth and love. Which, which, what, what does that do? What's the impact of that? It wins us to trust. Okay, so it ha- the Spirit has to do something in our hearts and minds, yes? To, number one, reveal the truth about God's character of love in such a way that we, our distortions are, are, are removed and, and we are one. Our hearts are one to affection and admiration and trust so that we willingly invite the Spirit in for the transforming aspects. The Holy Spirit doesn't transform those who are unwilling and refuse, does he? Plus you can't keep the character. It's a repeated process of us choosing the truth when it's revealed that develops our character. So would unfolding of the love of God and God's true character and methods be part of this process? And would the cross, the great sacrifice that Christ made at the cross, be part of the evidence that the Spirit would be using to persuade us of the character of God so that we are loved, one to love and trust? Do you see the connection here? This is not hypothetical. It's not theoretical. This is functional in how minds work. You can't change a mind and keep the individuality intact without the willing agreement of that mind. And so 
According to this author, the Spirit is making it effectual in our life, what Christ achieved, and the only way to make that effectual is to win us to understand what was being revealed and what was being accomplished there. So with this in mind, though, where are then the benefits of the great sacrifice that Christ made being being made effectual? Think this through. The Holy Spirit is making effectual the benefits of what Christ has done, but where is he making that effectual? Where's the action place? Get your mind around that. That's not what most Christians teach. Most of Christianity doesn't teach Christ is. And what's the metaphor for his death on the cross? A covering of the what? The blood. There's power in the blood. We're cleansed by the blood. The blood is the metaphor often used for his sacrificial death, right? Okay. And where do most Christians have Jesus pleading and, and applying his blood? Yes, okay, this is not where it's being made effectual. To make Christ's death effectual in the believer, it has to be applied. That's why Jesus himself said in John 6, unless you present my blood to the Father, there is no life in you. No, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, applying it within you. Okay? So, who? and you think this through. Who is it in this great controversy that needs persuading, convincing, converting, transforming, regenerating by the blood and evidence and life-giving energies of the divinity of Christ. Who needs that? Why are we having Christ in heaven presenting all this to the Father then? Do you see the fallacy in that? Do you see the, the wasted direction there? Because there is no transforming that the Father needs. There's no healing that the Father needs. There's no enlightening that the Father needs. There's no... And if we have the Father, Jesus working there, we turn him away and the Spirit away from working where the Spirit needs to be working in our hearts and minds. So with all that, go on to the next, next quote. He, so the Spirit's making effectual. As the regenerating agent make effectual the salvation wrought out by the death of our Redeemer. This is the quote I just read. And then keep going on. Having brought conviction of sin and presented before the mind the standard of righteousness, the Holy Spirit withdraws the affections from the things of the earth and fills the soul with desires for holiness. He will guide you into all truth. The Savior declared, if men are willing to be molded, there will be brought about a sanctification of the whole being. The Spirit will take the things of God and stamp them on the soul. By his power, the way of life will be made so plain that none need err therein. So what's the Holy Spirit described in this paragraph as doing? Changing the desires, the motives, the longings, enlightening, so that we won't be confused when we're faced at a decision point in life for those who are desirous, notice desire, desirous of the Holy Spirit and the enlightenment, they will have enlightenment and clarity on which is the course of health and which is not. Notice also, according to this author, says it's by his power, the power of the Holy Spirit, that this change is accomplished. So the question, what is the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, Russell quoted not by might nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works. So when we say by the power of the Holy Spirit, are we talking the power to create matter out of energy? Is that is that the power? The, the power of might? No. What is the power? Enlightenment transformation. Yeah. Truth and love is the power. 
Why is this? And I'm sure your, your computers are going, hey, uh, the other quotes we read, that there's no coercive power anywhere in God's government. In God's government, truth and love are the prevailing power. And the Holy Spirit is the, power, the, spirit, the spirit of truth and love. How is truth and love the power to accomplish, to make effectual? How is that the power? Do you see this is functional? It, it's operational. It's not mystical. It's not magical. Because truth is what's necessary to win you and win your agreement. And love is the motive upon which life is, is built to operate. And this is transformational. Yes? When you realize God's total motive is absolute unselfish love for you and everything that he declares and everything he's saying to you is because you are so precious to me that I want you to be safe and secure and healthy as you can be and ready in your heart to come home and live with me. And don't believe that other guy that's been telling lies about me. When you understand that to be the motivation, not a critical, nasty, you better do what I'm saying or else God, when you realize that heart, that's where his love and his completeness can just overwhelm you. And this is, and, and you're exactly right. And seeing it through design law, God is the creator. His laws are the laws upon which life are built, like the laws of health. Then you see him as the great physician. And anybody who's ever worked in healthcare will sometimes have patients that are non-compliant. I call those weekdays. <laughs> weekdays. <laughs> and you mean with two E's, not E-A. Correct. <laughs> okay. Weekdays. Okay. In other words, every day, patients that are not compliant. But when patients are not compliant and they get worse, does the doctor hate them? No. Does the doctor seek to use their energy to hurt them and punish them for that? No, this doctor has greater compassion on them because it's so sad. You don't have to suffer this way. You don't have to have this persistent, ongoing thing in many cases. Okay. If you would simply put the cigarettes down, your lungs would start to heal. So, so forth. So what do you think Christ meant when he said, the Spirit will teach you all things? The truth about me. The truth about God. So only theological things. Only the truth about God. Oh, well, I guess that's what I'm saying. You, you restricted it to theological things. How is displayed through the universe? Okay. So are there limits on what the Holy Spirit will teach us? A trick question. Yes. Be careful. The, yes, Russell. Yes, there are. Created by our minds. What, what? In the Garden of Eden, there was a tree of knowledge of... Exactly, good and evil. Good and evil. There's, a, there's an evil knowledge out there, isn't there? Will the Holy Spirit teach us evil? No, he will teach us how to identify and discern the difference between good and evil so that we can make choices to avoid evil, but the Holy Spirit will not teach us evil. That, that was the source of the fall. Uh, the scripture tells them when Eve saw the food was pleasing to eat and useful for obtaining knowledge, she took it and gave some to her husband. And, and that's so knowledge that God didn't, didn't want us to have. For their good. It was exactly. the detriment. So setting aside evil for a moment, though, and then coming back just to other subject matters, does the Holy Spirit teach us things that are non-directly theological, like mathematics, science, other things like that. Will the Holy Spirit be the source of truth when he says, teach you all things? The Holy Spirit teaches those things. Yeah. Yes. So Ben Carson shared a story in one of his books that he had not been as, as um, dedicated to study for one of his tests as he should have been. He's freaking out or, or very concerned about it. And the night before the test, he had a very vivid dream in which there was a problem on the board and worked all the way through it. And, and the next day at the test, it was actually the problem that was on the test. 
and he realized that his insufficiency in studying put God kind of in a compromising position. If you're going to help me succeed, i got to do my part. So in that case, it was beyond the realm of just theological. It was wanting, and of course, as Mariah kept saying, but it was wanting the knowledge of to be able to help others in a hurting world and all the rest. So it's beyond theology. Yes. I, I think that God makes up the difference. The Spirit makes up the difference when you put forth the effort, when you put forth the energy, when you prepare, like Daniel and his men that were you know, stuck in Babylon and they were focused on God and he opened up wisdom to them that was beyond. So I, yes, definitely think that your efforts when compounded with what the Holy Spirit can do can launch you to a new level. Oh, I like, I like both of these comments. I, I, has anybody else had the experience that, was, uh, that she referenced about Ben Carson? When I was in uh, my res- when I was in undergraduate school preparing for medical school, I was taking physics class, and um, <clears throat> I had uh, I was I was working full time. I was taking fifteen to eighteen hours of classes full time, and I was working as a big brother uh, uh, as well as giving Bible studies to a couple students. So I was kind of busy, and for whatever reason, I, I lost track, and it wasn't. At that point in my life, it wasn't typical for me to lose track of my deadlines, and I missed the deadline, and I realized that I'm going into work 3 to 11. I was working as an, as an ICU nurse at the time, working 3 to 11. Next day, I've got an exam, and I hadn't prepared for it. And I was like, so I, I was really stressed, and I was praying. I said, Lord, sometimes in the ICU, you could have a real quiet night. A patient that was just there for observation, and they were a cardiac patient, and you just needed to do your assessment and keep them quiet all night. You didn't have a lot of work to do, and you could actually then study. And I said, Lord, give me a little time to study, and I prepare. And I went in that night, and there was one patient in the ICU. And I was by myself with the one patient. So I was gonna, it was going to be a quiet night. There was there, there were a chest pain patient, rule out MI, there to observe all night. And I went and did my assessment on him, and he was a physicist that worked for the TVA. <laughs> and we got to talk, and I told him about physics. He told me to bring my book over, and he gave me a tutorial, and I went in and got an A the next day. <laughs> and uh, so, now, I don't know if he was a real physicist, an angel in human form. I don't know what was going on there. But um, it was very, uh, I, I saw that as an answer to prayer. And Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was really cool. So, um Back to the comment that was made about Daniel. This is out of a uh, uh, compilation called A Call to Stand Apart. And it says, In acquiring the wisdom of the Babylonians, Daniel and his companions were far more successful than their fellow students. But their learning did not come by chance. They obtained their knowledge by the faithful use of their powers under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. They placed themselves in connection with the source of all wisdom, making the knowledge of God the foundation of their education. Did the Holy Spirit help Daniel without Daniel's participation? No. Is there a role we have to play in obtaining knowledge and wisdom? If we make the knowledge of God the foundation... And by the way, this is important for students. There are many, many students who don't study, don't apply themselves, don't read their books, uh, and then the exam comes, and they desperately pray exam morning that they will do well on their exam. God loves the rest of us too much to let those people pass. <laughs> Think how, how many of you would like to go to a doctor who didn't study, but somehow passed their exams. Some, from, some miraculous intervention, they passed their exams, but have no idea what it was they just passed. 
Yeah, yeah. See, so the God, the God doesn't work that way. Okay? If we make the knowledge of God the foundation of our education, do we gain greater knowledge? This is a question to you. If we make God, the knowledge of God the foundation of our education, do we gain a greater knowledge into science when we study science than if we don't make God the foundation? True science. Mm-hmm. I would suggest... Now, you all said yes immediately. You know, I sometimes kind of throw little trick questions at you. So, but in this class, I know you would have gotten there on your own anyway, because I would say, does it matter which God we're making the foundation of our education? Does it matter whether the God that we make the foundation of our education is the God who makes up rules and punishes for breaking those rules, the imperial law God? And I would suggest if we have a God that is the God of the Dark Ages, the God who has a list of rules, the God whose law functions no different than sinful human beings, a list of rules, and if you break them, I've got to punish you. If we have that kind of a God and make that God the foundation of our education, then we deny evidence. Because what happens with that type of a God, we develop beliefs like this. We have faith. We don't need evidence. The Bible said it. I believe it. That's all there is to it. If you question the clear, the clear word of God, and the God, and it clearly says this, then, and so we deny evidence, or the Bible supersedes science. So any disagreement, when we have science says this, the Bible clearly says that, any disagreement, we ignore science, we deny the evidence in science and nature. And we're going to get there after the question in just a second. I want to finish this point. I would suggest, however, that people forget that the first book that God placed evidence in for our enlightenment was the book of nature. And Paul makes that clear. God's divine nature seen in what he has made so that men are out of excuse. Scripture didn't come along until millennia later. And rightly understood, science and scripture always harmonize. And we have a disagreement between science and scripture. One possibility is we misunderstand science. But another possibility, which has been frequently the case through history, is we misunderstand the scripture. There's not a problem with the scripture, there's a problem with our understanding of it. But many people have the view that the scripture is something to be taken without thought, a list of rules that are just de- declarations that we just accept without thinking. And then we form, because God works like we work in this view, he makes up a list and a rule and he, he's authoritarian. And if you break even the smallest minutia, you touch that ark, Azza, you're, go- you're, do- uh, you're done. Don't, don't deviate, because I'll get you. Okay, comment. I go to the university down the street, and um, it's just, I, the perspective, or what you said about um, God being revealed through what he's created in nature, and uh, just from my perspective, it's interesting to see that play out on a, just at the university, because um, I guess I have a bunch of nursing friends and it's amazing to see their view on life and their view on science and their view on the body because they're, you know, studying it 24-7. And um, they have a very, a very more relaxed understanding of the way, you know, what they're studying, the body and how amazing it is and how it works. It's, it's often, you know, they're in awe of some, of some of the stuff that they're studying. And so I, I would agree with what you said and how God reveals himself. And sometimes, yes, we... There, there are people or there, there are misunderstandings of what he's created, but often the facts are so attractive at times that God's, it's, it's like a general direction that he's trying to guide you. Uh, another, side, another side comment is I also find it kind of funny that um, I have a lot of theology friends, and it's also kind of funny how 
if you're taking nursing and their perspective on life and the way God is as a designer and a creator and what he's done is beautiful, and then you're to see the theology perspective and this is what I've learned, this is our tradition, this is, you know, the very, you know, law and authoritarian, it's, I guess from my perspective, it's often funny to find both of them attracted to each other. You know, often the, the general stereotype in, at Southern is that theology majors are always going after nursing majors. <laughs> so it's just, it's just, um, it's funny just to see that just because, you know, there's two very different perspectives and oftentimes we see, you know, the theology or the male, um, you know, in their relationship, if they ever get together that, you know, the theology, oh, you have a degree in theology, you understand more about, you know, spirituality and the way, the way you know, philosophy on life and in, in reality, I guess, what, what I've opened my eyes up to is, you know, understanding reality, like you're saying, the way God intended things to work, the design and what he created that oftentimes the nursing major, you know, they have a better understanding, yet they're expected to be quiet. And, and this is critical because... Yeah. So this is critical as you come back and if you go to science and nature and have God as your foundation, but the God you have as your foundation is a God who functions like we function, just with more power, makes up rules rather than design law. It absolutely obstructs your ability to understand nature and science correctly. When you come back to see God as creator, his laws as the design laws, then you can actually gain great insight and wisdom when you study these things. This is out of uh, Special Testimonies to Education, um, page 26. From God, the foundation of wisdom precedes all the knowledge that is of value to, to man, all that the intellect can grasp or retain. The fruit of the tree representing good and evil is not to be eagerly plucked because it rec- is recommended by one who was once a bright angel in glory. He has said that if men eat thereof, they shall know good and evil, but let it alone. The true knowledge comes not from infidels or wicked men. The word of God is light and truth. The true light shines from Jesus Christ, who lights all men that come into the world. From the Holy Spirit proceeds divine knowledge. He knows what humanity needs to promote peace, happiness, restfulness here in this world, and to secure eternal rest in the kingdom of God. Let me tell you what I know of this heavenly guest. The Holy Spirit was brooding over the young, uh, the youth during the school hours, but some hearts were so cold and dark that they had no desire for the Spirit's presence. The light of God was withdrawn the heavenly visitant would have opened the understanding, would have given wisdom and knowledge in all lines of study that could be employed to the glory of God. He came to convince of sin and to soften the hearts hardened by long estrangement from God. He came to reveal the greatest love wherewithin God has loved these youth. A principle of divine origin must pervade our conduct and bind us to God. This will not be in any way a hindrance to the study of true science. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the man who consents to be molded and fashioned after the divine similitude is the noblest work of God. All who live in communion with their creator will have an understanding of his design in their creation. They will have a sense of their own accountability to God to employ their faculties to the very best purposes. They will seek neither to glorify nor to depreciate themselves. What prevent in this in this particular description in this school she was writing uh, she was writing to a school and in this particular school what prevented the Holy Spirit from enlightening these people their refusal their own closed hearts 
unwilling to open to the Holy Spirit. What line of study would the Holy Spirit, according to this author, enlighten these people to? And enlighten our minds about, if we're willing. All lines of study, including science, that can be employed to God's glory. All lines of study. There's not a line of study that you can approach that the Holy Spirit won't enlighten you if it has an aspect of bringing glory to God. And glory to God is the restoration of his image within man, if it's beneficial, if it's healing, if it's redemptive. And what will these lines of study ultimately reveal? They ultimately reveal the truth about God and his character of love, which are built right into all of nature and science. So what is required to be able to benefit from the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit? What's the requirement? Yes. And I would say an open heart with a qualification. And a willing mind to see truth. Open heart. There's many people that have an open heart to a spiritual influence. Their hearts are eager for a spiritual influence. But they have a mind. A, a, a mental construct about the methodology of that spirit, about how God works, and they're seeking an influence to achieve. How many people who engage in acts of terrorism pray long and hard for divine presence to enable them to successfully carry out their acts? They're seeking a spiritual presence. So I'm going to suggest to you that not only is it an open heart, but that we also have an open heart with an understanding, an intelligent appreciation for the character and methods of God. There's not much more dangerous in this world than someone on a mission for God who doesn't actually know him. It's about the most dangerous thing in the world. And so we have to have an appreciation for his methods And when we teach in our churches that God's methods are the methods of truth presented in love, threatening to torture you if you don't accept it. Here's the truth, and I love you, but if you don't, justice will require that I torture and kill you because you refused. When you present that, then you can desire to be like that God. And you can go to people as a missionary, and you can present the truth, and you can do it a certain period of time, and you can be patient, but eventually the stakes come out. The rack, the torture devices. Because we must punish these people who continue to refuse. We will burn the witches in Salem. And who did that? The Puritans. And who are the Puritans? The ones who ran away from the persecution for their belief system in Europe. Yes, yes. Renee is asking, Jesus learned by studying nature. Did God use his study of nature to teach him how to do things we don't know how to do? Things like being able to walk on the water. You know, that's an interesting question. um, Because there's a connection there between his actual learning comprehension and abilities that he was able to participate in. And I don't think they're directly connected. I don't think his comprehension of the lessons of nature alone resulted in his ability to walk on water. I think there was more than that. I think it was a close connection with God and the Spirit and walking and abiding in the presence and the purposes of God that allowed him to do these things. But I do think there was a knowledge of nature beyond our ability to understand nature that he had. And that was probably part of it as well. But I think knowledge alone, disconnected from God alone, would not do that. There's a combination of true knowledge and that connection with God and his purposes combined. 
Tim, do you think it was beyond our ability to comprehend, or was it that he started from the get-go of that relationship and seeking knowledge and all the rest, so that it was more... What do you mean beyond our ability? Well, your statement was that he had beyond our ability to understand, and I wonder... Did I say that? He had beyond our ability to understand? No, what I meant was that um, he had something beyond knowledge. He had a deep, close relationship with that. So I, I, in his human capacity, I think his capacity for understanding is very similar to our capacity for understanding. So I wasn't saying he had an additional ability for comprehension. I was saying that his personal experience and pure heart gave him a closer intimacy with his father than us. So thanks for that clarification. So it talks about the power of the Holy Spirit, um, the power of the Holy Spirit in regard to our salvation. It's the power of truth and love that we mentioned earlier. Um, some people have emailed and asked about the presence of the Holy Spirit in the past, in Old Testament times, and what was Christ talking about when he said, it's good for you that I leave, then another comforter will come. Wasn't the Spirit already present in times past, is the question that comes up. And I, I read this this week in the Tsar of Ages 669. It says, before the Spirit, before this, the Spirit had been, before this, the, when Christ said, another comforter will come, that's what she's commenting on. Before this, the Spirit had been in the world. From the very beginning of the work of redemption, he had been moving upon men's hearts. But while Christ was on earth, the disciples had desired no other helper. Not until they were deprived of his presence would they feel their need of the Spirit, and then he would come. Yeah, but that's the disciples. How about the rest of the people in the world? Who was he talking to when he said another helper would come? He was talking to his disciples. Of course he was, but it was the same truth. If Christ had stayed on earth and lived as a physical being on earth and not ascended after his resurrection, which he had the power and ability to do, he could have set up a little you know, shrine, temple, whatever, and, and lived physically on earth. What would happen? What do you think? Just, just use your imagination and, and, and project the consequences and cascade of events that would happen down human history if he would have stayed here physically. We would be lined up thousands deep waiting for a personal audience with to... Isn't this what would happen? Seriously, isn't this what would happen? Those who first... First, I think there would be uh, unscrupulous folks that would try to gain power of him, take him prisoner... Okay, kill him again if they could, but they couldn't. So they would then try to possess him or own him or, or take, power, take control of him if he stayed here. Those who were more of humble nature and really wanted just wisdom, were really seeking God's, God's guidance, would they seek God's guidance in their personal journey, studying scripture, asking for the enlightenment of the Holy Spirit, developing trans, or would they seek that audience to be told the answer? And is there a difference in your own personal journey? In, think about any subject matter, also character development, any subject matter, you're studying mathematics. And you're trying to learn how to work certain equations and problems. Is there a difference between you having been instructed and then wrestling out, working them out, and ultimately coming to understand how to do it and, and formulate the answer? Is that one thing versus going to the teacher and have the teacher tell you the answer? Are those the same? Which helps you grow and develop more? So if Jesus stays here physically, does it really commend itself to the transformation and development and maturity of his people? Or does his 
physical departure with the coming of the Holy Spirit actually assist us more because it results in a mind shift for us. We stop seeking him to give us the answer, which the disciples were doing, and we actually start seeking to weigh out the evidence, asking for the Spirit to enlighten and power to teach us, but we have to actually think things through now. It cha- it's a different process, isn't it? So continuing on, it says the Holy Spirit is Christ's representative, but divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was of for their interest that he should go to the Father and send the Spirit to be his successor on earth. No one could then have any advantage because of his location or personal contact with Christ. By the Spirit, the Savior would be accessible to all. In this sense, he would be nearer to them than if he had not ascended on high. You see, profound benefits to the human race. Spirit was always here. There was not an appreciation of the need for the Spirit in Old Testament times, even even though you see David praying, take not your spirit from me. There wasn't the same appreciation for several reasons. One, in times past, Christ was also omnipresent and had his own ability to move on hearts and minds. He wasn't restricted to his human form at that point in time. The Spirit was still working in all times past, but Christ was working in times past as well. Now the Spirit is not only coming for the Spirit, but the Spirit is coming as Christ's representative, bringing Christ's messages, if you will. And I would tell you, please, P-L-E-A-S, please, the please of Christ. And when Christ is pleading in heaven, I hope you will always hear it, as Christ is pleading to you and to me, and the Spirit is hearing those pleas and communicating those pleas to you. I love you. I died for you. I'll heal you. Trust me. I'm here for you. I'll stand at the door and knock. If you open, I'll come in and sup with you. Christ is never pleading to his Father to persuade the Father to somehow be gracious and kind to us. So it also helps us understand how reality works. We believe God is love, yes? Yes. And does God win love and trust by overwhelming displays of might and power? You can't get love and trust by might and power. Then how? By the general persuasion of love and truth. And what is required for a person to experience the Holy Spirit in a more overt method in their own life? What's what's required in more overt ways? A desire from that person. You have to desire. You have to long for. You have to want a greater display of the Spirit in your life for the Spirit to manifest greater overt evidences in your life. If you don't want the Spirit in your life, the Spirit does not force His way into your life. Does that make sense? That's how love and truth work. Sunday, let's move on to Sunday's lesson. Uh, Second and third paragraph um, states... Uh, Jesus cares for his followers. He would not leave his disciples as orphans. He promised to send the Holy Spirit. Jesus here specifically says that he will send another helper or comforter. The word that Jesus uses here is significant. He promises to send another helper, not a different one. The Greek word for another is alos. alos. Uh, In the Greek language of the New Testament, alos indicates that Christ will send another comforter who is numerically distinct but is of the same character, that is, who is similar to himself. In other words, Jesus promises one like himself, one who will take his place, one who will continue to do his work in us, who is his representative. This work of the Holy Spirit is the work of a helper or comforter. The Bible here uses the Greek word parakletos to describe someone who is called upon for support, assistance, someone who's called to our aid. Now, I found this quite interesting. Has anyone here heard the term allopathic medicine? 
allopathic medicine as distinct from chiropractic, osteopathic, and homopath medicine, homeopathy. homeopathy. Have you ever heard those terms? Never heard homeopathy, chiropractic, um, osteopathic? Okay, the term allopathic, that's the medicine for the traditional science-based, evidence-based medicine that I went to medical school. And so if you have MD behind your name, you went to an allopathic medical school. Now, what is allopathic? Allopathic comes from allos, which is the same word, means um, another. Pathos comes from the, um, uh, pathos means um, uh, suffering, so allopathic, suffering. Put together, if you take pathos and put it together with logia, where we get logic, logia, pathology, pathos, ology, pathologia, pathology, that's the study of suffering or disease. So pathology is the study of suffering or disease. That's the Greek, that's underlying for these words. So allos means another, pathos means disease or suffering, another disease or suffering. What does this mean? It doesn't mean that, that, that people who practice medicine, MDs, bring another disease or suffering on the patient, but they specifically use interventions that are designed to bring disease or suffering on the disease. So if somebody has an infection, you treat that with an antibiotic, and the antibiotic is allopathic, it is another disease or suffering targeting not the patient, this time targeting the thing that's destroying the patient. In this, in this case, you're targeting the bacteria, the infection, to bring suffering to the bacteria. That's allopathic medicine, which is distinct from homeopathic medicine, and homeopathic medicine is the idea that like cure, cures like, which means that if somebody has a disease, the idea is that what causes disease in a healthy person will cure that disease in a sick person. So if somebody has an infection, you want to give them diluted forms of the same infection. That's the idea of homeopathic medicine. And study after study shows that homeopathic medicine, at the very best, is no different than placebo, and oftentimes actually causes things worse than placebo. So back to allos paracletos, another helper. What is the significance of another helper? Doesn't mean separate and distinct. What about what what about separate and di- separate and distinct from Jesus? Yes, another separate and distinct from Jesus, and another separate and distinct from the Father, but alongside and alike. So allos, allopathic, allos pathos, another disease to attack the first disease to destroy it. Allo paracletus, another helper, like the first helper, but beside the but not the not the first helper, but like him. So it's a helper like Jesus. To come to us. And how does the Holy Spirit comfort? Another comforter. Oh, way in the back. Comment? Yes. Did Jesus maintain his, um, per, um, his physical nature when he went to heaven, thereby not having that omnipresent presence anymore? Yes. That is what that is what we believe in and are told that he is restricted. This this his incarnation wasn't a thirty three year thing and then back. It was a permanent identification with the species human, and he is now encumbered for the rest of eternity with so his sacrifice was a huge sacrifice. It wasn't just a sacrifice of thirty three years suffering and dying on the cross and then return to all of his prerogatives and abilities, that he has encumbered himself for all eternity to be identified with the species and to be restricted with some of the limitations that humanity has for all eternity. God so loved the world that he gave. That's right. 
He, and for God so loved the world that he loaned his only begotten son. No, he gave. This was a permanent gift that Christ or alternative future will always be human as well as divine. With the scars to prove it. Yep. Yes. Do you think that, and this is we don't think you know the answer for, but do you think that's his his choice is to be forever in a human body to represent what he's done in the character of God? Because if he's God, you know, with all power, he could change himself back from a human to a godly form. Of course, it's an ongoing personal choice to identify forever as a human to represent God's character. I would say that's fair to say, absolutely. Yeah. So how does the Holy Spirit comfort? This is out of Zarev Ages 671. The comforter is called the spirit of truth. His work is to define and maintain the truth. He first dwells in the heart as the spirit of truth, and thus he becomes the comforter. There is comfort and peace in truth, but no real peace or comfort can be found in falsehood. It is through false theories and traditions that Satan gains his power over the mind. By directing men to false standards, he misshapes the character. Through the scripture, the Holy Spirit speaks to the mind and impresses truth upon the heart. Thus, he exposes error and expels it from the soul. It is by the spirit of truth, working through the word of God, that Christ subdues his chosen people to himself. How is the Holy Spirit the comforter? Have you ever had the comfort of coming to truth when you were wrestling with an issue, when you were distressed about something, when something was unsettled in you and you had truth come and it brought you comfort? Yeah, it really is healing. It really is comforting to come to the truth. Not all truth is necessarily pleasant. Some truths can be quite unpleasant to come to. But still, there is no healing in believing a lie. At the risk of uh, adding in the legal terminology of our Sabbath quarterly, the teacher's discussion, the teacher's comments about the parakletos and what it meant in ancient Greek was somewhat interesting in that um, it wasn't just an aid provided by the court for legal aid. This was for physical aid, emotional aid. Yes. It was all aid. Someone walking aside to assist you through the journey of life, not necessarily to carry you, but if you stumble or fall, to pick you up, to provide the resources. The, but there was a, the paracletus didn't live your life for you. No. He provided resources so you could be successful in living your life. And there's a big difference there. He provided what you needed. Yes. What happens if someone claims to believe in God and follows the rules and do the right rituals, but holds to the lies about God as the imposer of rules and the inflictor of punishment? What happens to their ability to experience the transforming power of the Spirit? Do lies about God obstruct the Spirit's ability from transforming and healing us? The Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Do you see the power of a lie? That people can be very religious. Remember, people who put Christ on the cross were religious people. But if, you, if we hold to lies, particularly about God, it obstructs the Spirit's ability to transform and heal us. There's still a transformation that takes place. Yeah, but it's not the one we want. Not in the right direction. It says, why is it so much more comforting, the lesson to ask this question, why is it so much more comforting to know that the Holy Spirit is a personality instead of a mere force? Now, that's the question. I, 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 first thing in my mind is, are those the only two options? <laughs> personality or a force? Does a person have to believe in the unique personality of the Holy Spirit to benefit from the work of the Holy Spirit in their life? Yes or no? They don't. No, they don't. Uh, could a person believe the Spirit is the Spirit of God the Father and not a unique personality? Could they believe that? That's when they say Spirit, that's the, that's the Father's presence. That's the Father's Spirit. 
They can believe it, but it doesn't make it true. It doesn't make it true, but could they benefit from the work of the Spirit, even though they believe it's the Father Spirit, not a unique personality? Because they still believe it is that carrying the Spirit. The, the same character that Jesus revealed and so forth. What, in other words, if you, if you don't acknowledge, if you refuse to acknowledge in some way, you haven't come to the point that you admit that a unique personality, the Holy Spirit will refuse to work in your life. No. Not at all. Could a person not believe either in the Holy Spirit or in a force? Could a person not believe in either? They don't believe in God even. Will the Holy Spirit not work on that person's heart and mind then? There's the Holy Spirit still working on that person's heart and mind. Yes. How could we tell if a person was responding to the Holy Spirit, even if they're ignorant of the Holy Spirit. How can we tell? There you go. Uh, Could a person believe in the unique personality of the Holy Spirit, but accept the workings of a false spirit as the Holy Spirit? I believe the Holy Spirit has a unique personality. I believe in the Trinity. But but my conceptualization of the Spirit is the Spirit works this way, and it's a false spirit. Could that happen? So does believing in the unique personality of the Holy Spirit protect us from a false spirit? does not believe in the unique personality of the Holy Spirit, preclude us from the benefits of the true Spirit. Isn't this interesting? Hmm. And if you want some text for this, Romans chapter 2, 12 to 15, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law that are righteous in God's sight, but those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who have not heard the law do by nature the things required by the law, are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. Now, what is the new covenant experience we're told about? I will write my law on your hearts and minds. So if these people have the law written on their hearts and minds, which member of the Godhead is the agency that writes the law on the heart and mind? This is the, so they have the benefit of the Holy Spirit, but they haven't heard anything about the Holy Spirit yet because they haven't had the scripture, the Torah, the law. But the Holy Spirit's writing the law on their heart. I like this one, now desire of ages. 638. Those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have little knowledge of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at risk of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those whom the light of... uh, whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature and have done the things that the law requires. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts. Have they acknowledged the unique personality of the Holy Spirit? No, it's not a requirement that we do this. Some then ask, then why do we take the gospel to the world and preach if this is true? Why do we do it? Why waste time? Why go out there? If all these people can benefit and the Holy Spirit's there working, why do, we, why do we present the gospel? I have a metaphor. Go ahead. That's the gospel we're trying to Let me give you this analogy. Penicillin is an antibiotic discovered from mold. And it's true that in some ancient cultures, wounds would be treated with moss or other materials that contain mold. And the mold secreted penicillin such that individuals benefited and either avoided infection or had their infections resolved when these mosses and molds were applied. That's true. Because it's true that people can benefit from this natural occurring penicillin from mold and have in ancient cultures done so, does that mean we should not produce, distribute, produce and distribute penicillin and teach people of its benefits and how to apply it when infections occur? Or would they, 
when we come to the knowledge of, of penicillin, how it works and how to apply it and when to use it, that we can affect and help so many more people more effectively than simply letting people randomly come to use molds and benefit from it because it's there. Likewise, Jesus, just because people can find God's character revealed in nature and benefit from the work of the Holy Spirit, doesn't mean it isn't much more effective when the truth is presented in its full light. Much more effective. Yes. Not only that, I mean, we are privileged to participate in this process, and it changes us. That's right. That's right. Thank you for that. Excellent. Yes. If there was some benevolent individual who was bestowing gifts on you, but you didn't know that individual... It'd be much better if you got to know them. There's that aspect of it as well. Thank you for that. Brilliantly said. Yes. I've noticed that those who have not heard the scriptures, those who have not been introduced to the Torah, but they are still uplifting, they're still holding the design law in their life. They seem to live their lives freer than those who have received the scriptures because they have believed in the lie about who God is. That, it's because they receive the Scripture through the imposed law, rules, constraint, the distorted view of Scripture. Those who receive the Scripture in harmony with design law, though, it's freeing and restoring, isn't it? Correct. And they believe in the lie of why Jesus truly needed to come, why they needed to be saved. So they're continually in fear and in doubt every single day of their lives. Exactly. Well said. So it's, uh, Monday's lesson, first paragraph, says, Can an impersonal force intercede in our behalf? Does an impersonal spirit or power have the ability to reveal to us things about God? Does an impersonal influence have the ability to speak? All those biblical statements make much more sense if the Holy Spirit is a personal being as opposed to an impersonal force. And as I read this, several things came to my mind. First, I thought some of these questions were quite good, like, can an impersonal force intercede in our behalf? See, intercession takes intention, willfulness, understanding, requires individuality. So that's a great question. But one of the questions was not necessarily quite as good for me. Can an impersonal force speak? Imagine 2,000 years ago, if you were back 2,000 years ago. Hey, Siri, what's the weather like tomorrow? It will be cloudy tomorrow, with a high of 63 and a low of 48. Is there an impersonal force speaking in this room? What would have happened 2,000 years ago if you had something like this operational, had it in your pocket, and you would have said that? Tell us what the weather will be tomorrow, Siri. Holy Siri. (laughs) What would have happened? Seriously. Do you think there could have been a whole theology built off that? Would people have been, there is a presence here, an intelligent presence so the fact that, that an impersonal force, impersonal force can't speak, impersonal forces can speak today. Can't they? Now, it's true that this particular impersonal force had an intelligence behind it that designed it. There's no question about that. But this particular speaking that we just had, this was not an individuality, a person, a personality that just spoke to us, was it? It was not. This was a force. Just created by an intelligence, but still a force. So I, I didn't think that question was quite as good for me. But the interceding one, Siri's not going to intercede for me. Not going to do that. Think about the potential false beliefs that could happen, though, if you went back in time and you had a functioning iPhone. <laughs> think, about the, think about the things you could establish in people's minds back then. It could really mess with people, couldn't it? And if you had a projector system as well. 
Siri will reroute you around accidents. She will reroute you around accidents. That's true. Interceding. Interceding for you. Yeah. <laughs> you got like 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 that. Well, no, Siri, Siri, Siri's only giving you information. You have to make the choice to get off the road and take the new route. <laughs> okay, but that's good. I like it. Yeah. It all has to do with our paradigm, though. When the first missionaries went to Africa and they had rolled picture scrolls, the people thought those were magical and that they had a picture of a human being and they would look behind the scrolls where the human being was standing there. There you go. So it's all our perceptions of what we have about reality. Exactly. And imagine, seriously, imagine the language you would have to use in Elijah's day, 2,500 years or so ago, uh, 3,000 years ago, to explain a microwave oven. How about a, a space shuttle? We've, we've seen shuttles. How many have actually seen a shuttle in person? I was in Orlando, saw them launch. We, what, what would you describe? That's a space shuttle? That word means nothing to me. That's a fiery chariot. Isn't it? What's a chariot in their language? It's a vehicle that moves. The fastest vehicle known to man in Elijah's day was a chariot. Nothing moved faster than a chariot. And it was a vehicle that carried people. But this one did so with fire. I'm not saying that was a spaceship. I'm just saying that's the language you would use. And so whatever it was, I'm telling you, you get the pictures from the artist with horses and and fire. I doubt it was horses and a chariot that he went up to heaven in. Do you really think it was? It may have looked that way to them so that the representation was something they could comprehend. Or he just had to use language that he had. Yeah, I just think it's interesting to think down these lines. Okay, second paragraph uh, says, uh, the distinctive characteristics of the personal- of personality are known or under, or, uh, or, excuse me, the distinctive characteristics of personality are knowledge or understanding, feeling and will. And uh, uh, a person can be, gr- a per- only a personal, personal being can be grieved, only a personal being can be deceived and lied to and so forth. A couple things. Is there a difference between knowledge and understanding? Absolutely. And they kind of put them together. Do you see that's a parenthetical statement there? It's like knowledge or understanding. Knowledge and understanding are not the same. Is understanding the same as wisdom? There you go. See, knowledge is facts or information. Awareness of facts, data, information. Wisdom, understanding is wisdom. The ability to understand, appreciate the significance and right application of those facts. So, knowledge is awareness that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing it does not go in a fruit salad. See? Knowledge is awareness that your parents, as a child, had ruled to brush your teeth or else you'd get punished. Wisdom is knowing that the punishment would not come from your parents. The ultimate punishment. Knowledge is awareness that God has rules that we must obey or else we get punished. Wisdom is knowing that the punishment does not come from God. Just to yes. add your analogy, knowledge is knowing tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. Philosophy is wondering if that means ketchup is a smoothie. <laughs> 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 uh-huh. Yeah, those types of statements remind me is it farther to New York or by bus? <laughs> farther to New York or by bus? <laughs> That's what those philosophical statements are like. <laughs> exactly. If you've got a strange look on your face, yeah. Is it, why, why do we park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? <laughs> why, do we leave, why do we leave on a plane on something that's called terminal? Yeah. 
Read the last paragraph on Monday's lesson. The last paragraph of Monday's lesson. The Holy Spirit has a personality. Else he could not bear witness to our spirits and with our spirits that we are children of God. He must be also a divine person. Else he could not search the secrets uh, which, is, uh, which uh, lie hidden in the mind of God. Do you want to comment on that? Divine person, does that mean that it's, he's an individual like God? Yes, that's what that would mean. And that's what the Adventist Church teaches. That's what Ellen White held. That's what I personally believe, that there are three individualities, three personalities, three persons in the divine trio, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. Um, I wanted to get to the, um, the, the Tuesday's lesson where it talks about um, the challenge we face with the Holy Spirit is that he uh, is often doesn't present in physical ways, is very difficult for us to, um, he's impalpable, hard to comprehend uh, than the Father or the Son. And we have an, an image in our life of what fathers are and what sons are, but the spirit is not really connected to some direct image in some way. It's harder for us to get to. Has anyone conceived of a way that makes the Holy Spirit easier for you to comprehend and relate to than, than this amorphous kind of presence? How many of you, does any, uh, how many of you pray to the Holy Spirit? Not to the Father, not to the Son, but to the Holy Spirit. And if not, why not? We pray to the, how many of you pray to the Son, dear Jesus? How many pray to the Father, our Father, which art in heaven? How many of you pray directly to the Spirit? Holy Spirit. If you did, would that make the Holy Spirit more real, more personal? To pray to the Spirit and talk to the Spirit. Now, can we or should we? Or should we only pray to Jesus and the Father asking Jesus or the Father to send the Holy Spirit? Is that the only proper and right thing to do? I've often heard people, in fact, my whole upbringing, if you think about your church experience, it's very common in church for people to pray to the Father or the Son asking for the unction of the Holy Spirit. Remember the days of the unction? <laughs> unction junction. Come down front for your prayer. The unction junction. And uh, people will pray for the Father or the Son to spend the Spirit. But if you pray that, and that's only the way you ever pray it, does that actually contribute to the undermining of our ability to experience the Holy Spirit as a personality? Because the Holy Spirit is not somebody we can talk to directly. The Holy Spirit is something that is sent to us by these two other individuals that we talk to. And does this unconsciously send this message and this idea that the Holy Spirit is some force, some energy, some presence that is distributed by the two personalities, Father and Son, but is not a personality himself? Just a thought. Does the Bible ever tell us to pray to the Spirit? Is there any place that tells us that? I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying I've never thought about praying to the Spirit. I've thought about praying that the Spirit would come into my life and my heart. Romans chapter 8, when we don't have the words to speak, the Spirit searches our heart and with groans and utterances speaks for us. Remember? Um, So I guess growing up and just this whole new idea of the design law and everything, it's kind of of new to me. And so I guess one of the questions I'd have is uh, the Holy Spirit... I guess what I've thought about it now is, is, is it, it's a spirit of truth in that, in that uh, there's that verse or saying it will guide them and lead them into all truth. And that, um, you know, back at, back at home, I guess, just, just to give an application, back at home, uh, there's this church revival thing that they're having. They have this book that they're trying to follow. And, and all, half of what the book is saying is that you need to pray for the Holy Spirit. You need to, this is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what the Holy Spirit, um, 
you know, where it comes from. It's just all about the Holy Spirit, but it just doesn't, like, I can describe so, and talk to you about one thing, but it's like you're not getting it. So, what, what basically, I guess what, um, we, we, we had some talks with some other individuals, and basically what, what, I, what I guess, what I came with myself, I would ask you whether this is true, is that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth. It's, it's understanding the realities of things, and that God, I, God is saying, I will impart to you something that, that is going to help you find truth, and that your heart is reacting to that truth. And that, 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 that's an ex- not that the Holy Spirit is an experience, that. No, that's exactly right. We're going to jump past what you said, but I don't have to comment on it now. It's in the lesson about the knowing. Life Eternals, they might know you, the only true God. This type of knowledge is not cognitive. Amen. This is not cognitive knowledge. It is experiential knowledge. The Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead that brings this knowledge to us, this experience to us. So it is. It is. Um, you know, it says that the devils believe in God. Who do you think has more confidence in the existence and the reality of God? Human beings or Satan? Satan. See, so that's, he has knowledge, cognitive, fact-based knowledge. But Satan no longer knows God. He doesn't know him. He's alienated from him. He actually is cons- has, cons- has settled his entire being on falsehoods about God. He knows he exists, but he doesn't know who he is. Life eternal is that we might know you, the only true God. We not only know he exists, but we know him, know him in heart, know him in character. We're settled into the truth in our being. The Holy Spirit comes in and dwells with us. And with that in mind, so this is an exper- exper- experiential knowledge rather than simply a cognitive knowledge. Additionally, but there is cognitive aspects involved. Because we know him experience, we have understanding and enlightenment of that too, so both. But you can have cognitive knowledge without an experience. For instance, you can have the knowledge and you can study in a lab how the mechanics of swimming but never actually get in water to know, have any experience with swimming. And many theologians study the, the knowledge and the theology of God and all the structure and mechanics of the plan of salvation and so forth and so on, but it doesn't mean they have an experience with it or an experience with God. It's a choice then. To let the Spirit... So I want to, I want to really hit this point on Thursday's lesson before we go, and this is um, the question of the personality of the Holy Spirit. It says in the lesson, the question of the personality of the Holy Spirit is the utmost importance and is highly practical implications. If he is a divine person and we think of him as an impersonal influence, we are robbing a divine person of the deference, honor, and love that is, due, that is his due. Did that just warm your heart? Did some part of you bristle against that? Did some part of you bristle against that? And if so, you should process that. Wait a second. Are they making the argument that, that we, we, it's important that we acknowledge the personhood of the Holy Spirit? Because if we don't, the Holy Spirit will get his feelings hurt, feel cheated and left out, and go sulk. No, this is not for the benefit of the Holy Spirit that we need to do this. The Holy Spirit isn't getting his personal feelings hurt any more than Jesus on the cross was going, Father, why are they treating me this? I've only raised the dead and fed the hungry and healed the sick, and look at how they're doing me. It just makes me feel so bad. He didn't. You don't find that. Now, you don't find him saying, this is so much fun when they treat me this way. I, I wish we'd do it again next weekend. He, there's no joy in this treatment. But his focus was not on, I feel so slighted as a person. His focus was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. So this idea that the Holy Spirit gets his feelings hurt, I think, is complete dis- misdirection. It's a complete misdirection of your thoughts and concerns. So, I think the argument is not, it is instead, the lesson is, the right way is that if we deny the person of the Holy Spirit, are we cheating ourselves out of something important? 
Yes, and this is what we cheat ourselves out of. A personal relationship with a divine, intelligent being who not only connects us with the other two divine beings, but of the trio is the one with whom we can have the most personal, intimate connection beyond the others. Why? Because we are living temples where which member of the Godhead is to dwell? Where the Holy Spirit is to dwell. And thus, if we deny his personhood, we deny an ongoing, intimate, daily walk and journey and personal friendship with the member that dwells within us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. And dear Jesus, we thank you so much for your sacrifice. And Holy Spirit, we thank you so much for your presence. And we ask that your presence will come and that we will begin to experience your presence for real and that you will not only enlighten our cognitions but transform our internal experiences to experience the holy things of God. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.